We're reading in Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, there is not enough, there is not able to finish. All who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man has begun to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, will the other, why the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple." Thank you, Martha. Whew. So last Sunday was the Bass Pro Marathon, and we had a whole lot easier trip getting into church today. Uh, I got to tell you, every year when the Bass Pro Marathon comes around, I, uh, I, I listen to Jesus, and I count the cost, <laughs> and firmly decide not to run, right? <laughs> because there are costs that we are willing to pay, and there are costs that we are not willing to pay. That being said, we, you know, my own wife uh, will, will run in that thing from time to time. So she's crazy. Pray for her. Uh, so in our passage today, Jesus says that we should count the cost of becoming a follower of Jesus. Now, I'm going to kind of let you guys behind the curtain just a little bit so that you can understand some of my... Like, why, why does Brandon do things the way he does them? Uh, for just a minute, I want to talk to you guys about why I do invitations the way I do. So if you grew up in a Southern Baptist church, if you spent a lot of time in a Baptist church, not necessarily this one, but in Baptist churches across the country, uh, there is historically, or maybe we could say a stereotype, of putting a lot of pressure on the end of the service to uh, put your faith in Jesus uh, it's the, the turn or burn idea, these uh, very high emotional um, invitations at the end of the service. That, that is not something that I do. That is, uh, I, I'm not saying I, I don't ever put emotion into the invitation, but that is not my standard mode of practice. And I think, I think this idea of counting the cost of following Jesus is a a big reason why I don't do that. Let me, uh, let me tell you guys a story. Not a story, I'll give you an example of, of what, what, where this comes from. Um, so my wife has an expression uh, that she will say when she talks about our dating relationship that ended up in our marriage. Uh, she says that she didn't fall into love. She will say that she climbed into love. Now, that may not sound very romantic to, to some of you, but I gotta tell you, I find it extremely romantic. Let, let me tell you why. Uh, she didn't get tricked. She didn't get duped, uh, despite what you all may think, I'm not so smooth and, you know, uh, Casanova as to lure her into my webs of love. That is not what happened at all, right? You, you might say that my wife counted the cost And she decided she was all in. She knows who I am, and she married me anyway. Now, if you ask me, that's far more romantic because it wasn't an impulse. It wasn't just emotion. She climbed into love. So when I do invitations at the end of service, my goal is to allow the thrust of the message to remind us of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to remind us of his grace 
and salvation that brings us peace with God and simply to provide an opportunity for us to respond. I don't want you to jump into making a statement of faith based on emotion alone. When we say we believe in Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we should count the cost and climb in. Jesus invites us to climb in intentionally, not fall in emotionally. Are you you following what I'm saying today? So Jesus tells us that, that when we follow him, when we say you are my Savior, what we are doing is placing him at the top of everything. He is above all. And when Jesus says all, we need to understand that Jesus means all, everything, everyone. His ways are to become our ways. His priorities are to become our priorities. His morality is to become our morality. Where he leads, we go. What he does, we do. We can't just follow Jesus until it becomes uncomfortable. We follow, even if it hurts. Becoming a disciple of Jesus is to say that he is the master and we are the student. To to be a disciple is to commit to watch and learn from him so that we can be more like him. Him. Romans 8, 29 says this, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be what? Conformed to the image of his Son. It is God's will, his desire, his plan for you as a follower of Jesus to be more and more like him. That's what he wants for us, to be more and more like him. Himself. Now, ultimately, this is fulfilled in heaven and glory when we are glorified uh, uh, in, in eternity for forever and ever. That's when this ultimately happens. But just because that ultimately happens in heaven does not mean that it isn't happening now. This is a reality that is taking place in our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit day by day. So today, true followers of Christ are being conformed to the image of the Son through the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. So to follow Jesus, as long as it's convenient, or to follow Jesus as long as it's good for me according to my opinion, isn't actually following Jesus at all. In that case, you're merely going the same direction that Jesus is going for a short amount of time. Let me give you another little analogy, um, and then we'll get into the text today. So let's just say you are walking down a path, okay? You're walking down a path, and as you're walking down a path, you come across somebody, and you start to walk with this guy, and you strike up a conversation, and it's a really good, encouraging conversation, and you realize you're low on water, and this generous man gives you some of his water, and you didn't quite pack enough snacks for this journey and you're hungry and he gives you something from his pack. He takes a break and you take a break. You trip and fall, he, skin, he picks you up and, and helps patch your skin knee. You're going the same direction and man, this journey's pretty good. But then comes a fork in the road and you start to go to the right and he starts to go to the left. And you say, hey, wait, I'm, I'm going that way. And he says, I'm going that way. And you say, okay, bye. See you later. He says, okay, you can walk with me. No, I'm good, I'm going this way. And you go off in your own direction. Let me ask you a question. Were you following that guy? Were you following him? The answer to the question is no. And how do I know that the answer is no? Because your destination is different. And if your destination is different, then you're not following the person. Okay, this morning, 
Tim, I don't know if you realize this or not. Tim and I both live out East Sunshine. We saw each other on the road. Did you see me? I saw Tim. And, I, and he came right up next to me. And I was like, oh, no, should I slow down? I don't want Tim to know that I'm speeding. <laughs> but don't worry. We were in good company. Thank you, Tim. So anyway, we're, we're, we're driving to church. And see, he didn't even know he was following me. We ended up in the same place, right? So it, what, how do we know if we're following somebody if we end up in the same direction? I know you've all been on the highway with somebody who's with you for six miles. You even stop at the same rest stop. But they're not following you. You know why? Your destination is not the same. To follow Jesus is to forsake whatever is at the end of your path and to walk on his path going where he's going. Now, I know every analogy breaks down if you push it too far, but let's just continue this analogy for just another second. There can be all kinds of good things at the end of our own path. Maybe you just want to do what's best for your family. Maybe you want to use power and wealth to do good for others. Maybe you're trying to walk down a path to self-discovery and trying to become the best version of yourself. Now, this all sounds good on the surface, but at the end of each of those paths is you. It's your own interests. It's your own plan. To follow Jesus is to trust that his interests are the best interest of your family. To follow Jesus is to trust that he has the wealth to meet your needs and take care of you and to meet the needs and take care of the world. Following Jesus means that you trust him with your greatest needs, with your greatest fears, and the things in the world that matter the most to you. So, when we look at the passage that Martha read for us earlier today, Jesus talks about the cost of following him. And he talks about how that cost is very, very high. Following him means walking in his ways above our own ways, no matter what. So Jesus mentions three costs, three costs of following him. The first cost is our relationships. The second, which is actually the third in the text, but the second one we're going to deal with, is our possessions. And the third is our own life. So let's dive into the passage today and see the cost of following Jesus. Let's reread Luke chapter 14, verses 25 through 26. It says this, Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me, and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sister, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. All right, now the, the last part there of verse 26 lets us know what's at stake. So what's at stake in this passage? It is being Jesus' disciple. Are you going to pay the cost or not? If you pay the cost, you can be his disciple. If you can't pay the cost, you can't be a disciple. So what's it cost? Or what's at stake? Being a disciple. Now, let's talk about the cost. The passage is pretty particular here as it lays out these relationships. It says, parents... Spouses, children, siblings. Some of these are easier to give up than others. I love you, David and Doug. I'm just kidding. See, I would mean them, not my kids, not my wife. Anyway, all right, let's carry on. So, so since Jesus lists our closest relationships and, and, and the ones that we have the greatest responsibility to, I think it's safe to say that this list is completely representative. Right? I, I don't think we should say, well, so-and-so's not my spouse or my kid, so Jesus doesn't mean that. I think we should see, since these are the relationships that we have the most responsibility to and the ones that we're closest to, this is a great placeholder for all relationships. So Jesus is saying, I need to be number one. Now, we don't have a huge problem with that. We understand, I think at least cognitively, that if we're going to worship someone as God... 
then, then there's a level of, okay, I'm saying that that's priority. Uh, that's priority. I mean, they're, they're God. It's Jesus. It's, it's the Father. It's the Spirit. God, priority. And that's kind of the definition, right? So then, then we've got this word that's in our text today that's obnoxious. Jesus says that we need to hate the people we are closest to. And I don't know about y'all's houses, but hate's kind of a cuss word in our house. We don't say we hate things, let alone people. So, so how does this work? What's going on? I think Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 39, helps us understand this with a little more clarity. So let's look at Matthew's version of the same teaching. Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 39. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemy will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now what we see here in Matthew chapter 10 is Jesus addressing the cost of following him at the same time that Jesus addresses the idea of division that comes from following him. So I want you guys to think back just a few weeks ago to when we were in Luke chapter 12. Think about Luke chapter 12. And Jesus addresses the idea of division in Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 51. Jesus says this, Do you think I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. For from now, from now on, in one house there will be five divided, three against two, two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. What, what do we see here in 12? It's, it's this, the same if you take what we read today in 14 and you take what we read in 12 and you mush them together, you get what Jesus said in Matthew 10. It's the same teaching, but what's missing in Matthew 10? The word hate. It's not there. So what does that mean? I think that this means is that, that we get a better sense of what Jesus is trying to say. Uh, the Bible commentator Robert Stein says that the word hate should be understood as a lesser degree of love. It, is, it should be understood as a lesser degree of love. Another commentator, James Edwards, says that Jesus' use of the word hate in verse 26 is likely in connection to the Hebrew concept of the word for hate, which emphasizes rejection or subjugation of one thing when the other is primary. What did you say? Okay. It's the, the idea here of rejecting one when the preference is for the other. All right? So uh, let me give two Old Testament examples. Jacob. Jacob had two wives, Leah and Rachel. So he had favor for Rachel, and there was some rejection, hate, if you will, for Leah. The Bible talks about how God hated Esau, and loved Jacob. Is it actually talking about hate in either of those situations? No, it's not. It's a lesser degree, okay? It's, it's this idea of emphasizing the contrast to show how much of a priority the other should be, okay? Um, Edwards says that in the ancient world, the, the inclination was not to discuss matters as different degrees of good, but rather to draw out the distinct contrast. So what we see in Matthew chapter 10 is uh, Matthew draws out the degrees of good, while in Luke 14, Luke points out the contrast of just how far we should go down 
the path to follow Jesus. Do you see how they're really saying the same thing? So we shouldn't, when we hear this word hate, get so caught up in the word hate. I think, I think Matthew's, Matthew 10's connection to Jesus bringing the sword of division and Luke 14's uh, connection to Jesus' discussion of division uh, in chapter 12 should help us see what Jesus is teaching. So when we look at the whole of Scripture, when we look at the totality of Scripture, we see Jesus in particular, let alone Paul, the other apostles, and in the Old Testament, we see Jesus in particular talk about how a, a husband should love his wife, talk about the responsibility of a parent to their children, talk about even the responsibility of a child to their parent when they're older. All these things are laid out and taught in Scripture. So what we don't see is Jesus actually telling the people to hate your kids. He's not saying that, okay? Over and over again, we're commanded to love and care for our children. We're commanded, I mean, shoot, even the relationship between uh, Jesus and us is often compared to a father and its children. So this relationship is understood as a loving, compassionate relationship. So why would Jesus use the word hate? The reason for that is to draw out the distinction of priority. Who is at top, on the top? Jesus is emphasizing who we follow. Jesus is emphasizing who we follow, no matter what. It's not about hate. It's about primacy and priority. Let me see if I can give you a, another example here. So as a parent, uh, my children will one day begin to make more and more of their own choices. And my children will have more and more independence. Now, as my children have this independence, they're going to make decisions I'm not going to agree with. Okay? Now, I... I hope this doesn't happen, but at some point it is possible that my children might even begin to make moral and theological decisions that I don't agree with, that stand opposed to the truth of God's word. Now, who am I following? Who's at the end of my path? If my children are at the end of my path, then I'm likely to adapt my morality and my views to accommodate my child's decision. But if, if Jesus is at the end of my path, if his ways are at the end of my path, then I cannot deviate from his path to accommodate my children. That causes tension. That causes division. Now, similarly, some of us may be saved out of a home that doesn't believe the truth of the gospel that is represented in Scripture. Maybe, maybe you grew up in a Mormon family. Maybe you uh, grew up in a Muslim family or a Hindu family. I don't know. Uh, if you didn't, maybe you know somebody who did. So as a, a person who's come to faith, you maybe, shoot, maybe it's an atheist. I don't know that your family is. But as you come to faith in Jesus, you've now deviated from what your parents believe. And that may cause tension. And, and your parents, your family may say, hey, to continue with the family... You have to believe these things. But who's at the end of our path? If Christ and his ways are at the end of the path, then we follow him. Even if our parents, our, our parents go another way, we're, we're not following our parents. We're following the truth as it's revealed in Scripture. Let me, uh, let me share a passage with you. This is from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 20 through 24. Peter says this, for what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? In other words, Peter says, if, if you commit a crime, if you're a jerk, if you disrespect the authority and you get beat for it, do you want credit for that? Like, no, you deserve that beating, okay? Continuing on. But if when you do good and suffer for it and you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. 
He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who, just, who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So what's Peter saying? What's the point of this passage and why would I bring this into our text today? All right, so Peter basically says here, if you mess up and people treat you badly and hate you or beat you, then that's kind of on you. But... If you are following Jesus and loving others as he has loved us, and you are following in his footsteps, and people hurt you or cut you off, because you side with Jesus, because you're following him, and you suffer for that, Peter says that's a blessing. Paul says something similar in Romans chapter 12, verses 14 through 18. It says this, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. Now look at verse 18. If possible, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Church, Jesus came to proclaim the truth about himself, about the Father, and about the kingdom of heaven. Jesus' message is controversial. He tells us that we have to choose him or the world. That's the choice he lays before him. And if we choose him, then we are set at odds with the world, and it is quite possible that the world will hate you because of who you have identified as the one that you are following. Jesus says this explicitly in John chapter 15, verses 18 and 19. He says this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore, the world hates you. Following Jesus means that our path will not be going where the world's path is going. There is a division between following Christ and following the world. But, church, hear me. As far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. If you're a jerk and you catch a beating, that's on you. That's what Peter says. But if you do good and suffer, well, that's a blessing. Because Christ did good and suffered. And so we should be counted then with Christ as one who endured what was right. So, so following Christ will set us at odds with those who do not follow Jesus. This conflict is inevitable. Those who do not follow Jesus will say a certain action or behavior is true and right. But Jesus has already told us the truth about what is true and right. So to follow Jesus is to say no to this sinful behavior that the person we love is trying to justify. It's not one of those things where we can simply say, well, that's right for you, but it's not right for me. When something is wrong or morally objectionable, or defies the ways of God, or deviates from the path that Christ walks, when something like that emerges, we have to say, that's wrong. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to follow that. And not only am I not going to do that or follow that, I can't even give assent to the fact that it's okay for you to do it. I cannot approve of you saying this is okay. 
Let me give you a text to show that. This comes from Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 28. It says this, And since they did not see, this is talking about those who are unbelievers, okay? So that they here as unbelievers, people who have rejected the gospel. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. Youth, just notice this. Right here in the middle of this list is disobedient to parents. All right, we can continue. Uh, Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Now look here at verse 32. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. All right, just put your finger there. Basically what this saying is, these people know this is wrong. Okay, They know it's wrong, but they're doing it anyway. They don't care. They know what a sin is. They know, but they're just good with it. This is my decision, my life. I can do with my life what I want. I can do this if I want to. All right, that's what that's saying. That's the first half of verse 32. Not only do they know God's righteous decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. What I need you to see here is is that last part there. Give approval to those who practice them. Part of the judgment of their sin is on the fact that they approve of what is clearly sin. As followers of Jesus Christ, We follow his way, and we cannot approve of something that defies his way. If if we do, then we endorse the behavior. God has called it sin. To approve of it is to say, no, it's not. If it is sin for me, it is sin. If it is in God's word revealed as sin, it is sin. We, we We don't get to say, well, that's your truth. That is not what Scripture leaves us with. What is right is right, and what is wrong is wrong. So here's the deal. When we follow Christ, when when we go down His path, there will be a conflict between us and the world. Now, Jesus says, hate your brother, your sister, your mother, your father, your husband, your wife, whatever. Hate everybody, right? That sounds awfully terrible. But here's what He means. My ways are truth. My ways are life. If you're going to follow me, follow me. All of me. And when you follow me, the people who go down the other path are going to say, approve of me. Validate me. Say I'm okay. Say I'm fine. And we have to say, I'm following Jesus, and he says, that is sin. The answer is no, I cannot do that. And you know what's going to happen? That tension's going to mount, and we're going to feel it because we love these people. We love them. We care about them, and we're going to feel that tension. Lord, why, why would you say, why would you say that I can't comfort them? And he's going to say, because that path leads to death. That path leads to destruction. That path is without me. That destination is not where you want to go. You want to follow me. And so we have to be willing to say, I, I, can't, I can't affirm that. I can't be okay with that. So it creates that division. Is it, is that, does that mean we actually hate them? No, but it means the choice is clear. It means the choice is clear. I'm following God even if it sets me at odds with my parents. I'm following God even if it sets me at odds with my children. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Don't turn there today. I'm following God even if it sets me at odds with my spouse. He is my priority. As far as it depends with you, live at peace with everyone. If bridges are burned in relationships, don't be caught holding the match. The bridge should be burned from the world's side of the path, not ours. 
Over and over again, he tells us to love our enemies. Over and over again, he tells us to walk the extra mile. Over and over again, he tells us to have compassion for those who are hurting. If the bridge is burned, don't be caught holding the match. This is a high price to pay for following Jesus. But he's not quite done. Not only do we have to be willing to give up our relationships to follow Jesus, we have to be willing to give up our possessions as well. Look at Luke chapter 14, verse 33. He says, Therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, time won't let us get too deep into this one today, so I'm going to be brief. The first thing that we should note is that every example given in Luke 14, this section, is presented in the extreme. Hate your family, right? Are, are we actually supposed to actively hate our family? No, we're, we're not. Okay, so I hope I've made that clear. This is about primacy and priority not about actually hating your family. It's presented in the extreme to make the point. Okay? So similarly here, uh, are we supposed to, to hate ourselves uh, to the point that we take up our cross and like commit suicide on a cross? Like, is that what it's talking about? N no. You see, it's in, the, it's in the extreme. So here Jesus says, renounce all. So is Jesus saying that to follow him is to take a vow of poverty? I think the answer to that is no. Now, he might be. He might be telling you to do that, but I don't think that's Jesus' point. I want you guys to uh, think back with me to the Sermon on the Mount. This is what I think Jesus has in mind whenever he says renounce all uh, for the sake of following him. Jesus says in Matthew 6, verse 19, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now skip to verse 24. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. I think what he's talking about here is that same thing. That same thing. Is money a useful tool? Can it be used for good? It sure can. But man, it can't be priority. It can't be priority. The second your money and your stuff is your priority, you're in trouble. If your governing uh, um, calculus in your brain is how much is this going to cost me? You got the wrong calculator up there. Okay? Jesus is saying that, that can't be it. You're following me. You're following me no matter what it costs you. Maybe it is the vow of poverty. I don't know. I can't say that. But whatever it is, you cannot let money keep you from following me. I think about what he says in Matthew 5, again in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. What's that mean? Quit trying to make it all fair. Like, be gracious. Who cares about fair? And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Even in Luke 12, we see Jesus say, uh, it says in verse, 20, verse 22 of 12, And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For, the, for life is more valuable, sorry, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Again, it's not that all money and wealth and possessions are evil and must be rejected. What Jesus is saying here is that following him may lead you away from, here's the word that all of us Americans love. We just like want to wrap ourselves in a blanket of it. Security. Following Jesus may lead you away from the security of wealth. People may take your stuff because you're following Jesus. It may put us in odds in such a way that they take your stuff. We can't say, well, I'm not going to follow Jesus because if I follow him, they're going to take my stuff. He is number one, even above everything. In the name 
of Jesus, you may be called to help somebody that may require you to sell your stuff. So he says, don't be so attached to your stuff that you don't do what he's called you to do to be obedient. Hold your stuff loosely. Jesus may be calling you to go somewhere that you can't take all your stuff. So hold on to your stuff loosely. Who's your priority? Jesus. Who are we following? Jesus. Where he goes, we go. It's not about our stuff. It's not about our security. It's not about our wealth. It's about following him. And anything that gets in the way of following him has to be cast aside. Count the cost of following Jesus. Now what's the third cost of our passage today? And it comes from right in the middle. The third cost of following Jesus is your very self. He says, starting in verse 26, and then we'll, we'll skip some words and go to verse 27. If anyone comes to me and does not hate even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Remember, Jesus isn't speaking literally here, okay? So this is a metaphor that could mean we end up as martyrs dying for Jesus, but it doesn't have to mean that. Again, like I joked earlier, this is not command for suicide by cross. All right, when we follow Jesus, we put our hopes and dreams on the back burner. Maybe we get to follow those, maybe we get to fulfill those, but maybe we don't. That's not what's at the end of our path, okay? Our life belongs to the one we're following. It no longer belongs to us. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 that we are not our own we are bought with a price. Paul's whole point in that passage is that we don't get to do whatever we want with our bodies. We are not our own anymore. We can't have two masters, right? If he is our master, if we're following him, then we are not our master. What's the cost of following Jesus? It's your very own life. I love the way that Paul describes the same concept for us in Romans chapter 12. This is a, a verse that I learned in Awana that I'm sure many of you have learned before. Romans chapter 12, starting in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as what? Living sacrifices. Living sacrifices holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. What's our act of worship? Dying to self. Laying down our hopes and dreams, laying down our future plans, not because those things are innately bad, but because following Jesus is so much better. Because we're going to forsake all else to follow him. That's what he said to do. So how's it continue? Do not be conformed to this world. Don't go down that path but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Follow him down his path, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God. In other words, so that you can know how to follow him, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Taking up your cross and being living sacrifices are virtually identical concepts. To trust Jesus to follow him as the Lord of your life is to lay down your will and your ultimate future that you have for yourself and exchange it for his will and his future for you. To follow Jesus is to deny yourself. To follow Jesus is to say, if what I want does not fit into what God has called me to, then I will deny myself what I want. Now, how far does that denial go? How far does that denial go? It may mean denying ourselves, our closest relationships, if they actively deny Christ. It may mean giving up our possessions, maybe all of them, if that's what it takes. 
It may mean denying a dream. Now, we do this not to punish ourselves. Okay, this is not about punishment. We do this because we truly believe that his way is better. We do this because we know where following our path leads. Following that path leads to Christ. It leads to peace with God. It leads to that security that we long for. It leads to that kind of security forever. We do this because we believe it is truly better. Following Jesus and denying ourselves is not a punishment. So as we close today, I want to remind you that that many people, many people want to walk along the road with Jesus for a while, as long as it's convenient. But I want you to ask yourself, where are you going? Where are you going? What's at the end of your path? Is what's at the end of your path Christ and what he's called you to? Or is what's at the end of your path more of yourself? He's called us to something better. He's called us to something greater. When when the fork in the road comes, who do you listen to? Do you die to your own goals? Have you surrendered those goals to the one you follow? Are you willing to lay down your possessions? If, If following Jesus means being rejected by others, are you still willing to follow Jesus? Guys, following Jesus is going to cost you. But here's the thing. So is following yourself. Following yourself is going to cost you as well. Pleasing others is going to cost you too. Compromising on your convictions to preserve a relationship, it all costs you. I want you guys to remember what Jesus said in, back in Luke chapter 9. This has become, this is something I learned in the last 12 months that has really shaped the way I think about this cost. Look at what it says in verse, chapter 9, verse 23 through 25. And he said to all, if any would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily and follow me. Again, this, we're in Luke 14 today, this is Luke 9. So this is another time he said this. And I want you to see how he talks about this. For whoever would save his life will lose it. He said this in Matthew 10 as well, right? But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? If you try to to save and preserve all the things of this world that following Jesus is going to cost you, what does this passage tell you? You're going to die. Those who try to save their life will lose it. But the only way to truly save your life is to lose this world's life. You're, everybody pays the cost. Everybody's going to lose something. When we lose, we get hope. We get the hope that following Jesus here and now on earth is better. That, that following him here and now with uh, the, the brotherhood and sisterhood of, of, of Jesus Christ here in the church, that that is better. That though I may lose relationships with those who reject Christ, I have brothers and sisters in Christ in the church, and they offer something that is different but better. It's even sweeter when our family is believers, right? But that connection that we have, that we're willing to forsake it all for following Jesus, that connection is better. Do you believe that, church? Now, for us in America, most of our families aren't going to force us to make this decision today. But I got to tell you, the way our world is headed, that's coming. We're going to see it more and more. It's better. This, this bond that we have 
in Jesus Christ is better. The encouragement and hope that we have for uh, life free of our, our sin, truly forgiven. Our world, especially in America, is spending hundreds of millions of dollars on therapy to alleviate guilt and to feel better about ourselves. But what, what does Christ tell us? In Him, we can have true forgiveness. He can make us whole. He can satisfy. He can do for us what you cannot get in therapy. Following Jesus is better. That shame and guilt that you bear, He will take it. You can know forgiveness and grace. You can know acceptance in Christ. It's better. Not only that, but it's better for eternity. It's better for eternity. There'll be no more weeping, no more crying, no more tears. In Christ, even especially, eternity is better. So let me ask you this. What's at the end of your path? Who are you following? Are you following yourself? Or are you following Christ? Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for how much you love us. We thank you that you have invited us to count the cost. That you did not try to manipulate us with emotion. You said, think about it. Are you willing to pay the cost of following me? Do you believe that I am who I said I am? And if you do, how much are you willing to stake on it? And you've called us to stake it all. Father, there are going to be those who are here who still are struggling with paying this cost. Lord, I pray that your spirit would show them that they were worth it to you to pay the cost. That you paid the cost in your own blood. Father, I pray that they would see your love, your mercy, your grace, and your forgiveness. Lord, I pray that you would reveal that to them and they would climb into a relationship with you. Having considered and desiring to move forward in faith. Lord, we thank you that you call us according to your good purposes. Lord, I pray that you would uh, speak loudly to our ears that we may hear you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. As we sing these last couple songs, uh, the altar's open. This is a chance for us to just lay our needs down before the Lord. I just want you to be thinking about what are the things that I've been following. Maybe you're following the path of Christ, but those little rabbit trails off to the side are awfully enticing. And we need to pray to the Lord, help me stay on your path. Help me be willing to forsake these things. The altar's open to lay those things down. If you're here and you're ready to place your faith in Jesus, you can talk to a believing friend next to you. And they can talk with you more about what it is to follow him. And you can find me after church or now or whatever. However the Lord may be working in your life, this is our chance to respond. Tyler.